And welcome to another episode of Reggae Uprising Podcast. Here for you every single Wednesday, connecting people of the diaspora through wisdom, overstanding, inspiration and some sweet reggae music. Now, as you well know by now, I have a different guest on every single week that shares their experiences in their chosen field, their industry, or just generally their experiences on their journey through life. If you would like to get caught up on previous episodes, all you need to do is go to Daniil Music on any social media platform, or alternatively, you can go to daniil.co.uk. Now, after listening to this podcast, if you just can't get enough of reggae, don't worry, I've got you covered, as well as being a host For this podcast, I am also a reggae singer-songwriter. So that means that I do three shows every single week. So we've got on Monday, Reggae Uprising, where I sing either a reggae anthem, a fresh reggae tune or an original tune written by myself. And um, that's actually a video so you can get to see me, interact with me, talk to me now, give me some comments, show me some love. So yeah, that's every Monday to get your week started off nicely. Obviously, every Wednesday we have a Reggae Uprising podcast, which is all about connecting people of the diaspora, as you well know by now. And each one of my guests picks seven reggae selections. So you got your reggae there again. And then every Friday, which is kind of a new show, is Reggae Uprising Selector. So Reggae Uprising Selector, what I do is I pick one out of those seven selections that my guest has picked um, for the podcast. And I sing them for you on a Friday to take you into your weekend nicely. Um, so like I said, if you want to get caught up on any of the shows that I do, all you need to do is go to Daniil Music via my social media or you can go to daniil.co.uk, which I will also leave the links in the description for. Got a couple of live shows popping around again still as well. So like I said, go to my website, daniil.co.uk, if you actually want to come see me live. Yes, live. Right, I think it's about time we got started with today's guest's first selection. Yeah, you're ready? You're not ready though. All right then, here we go. We're going to start off with Dumpling, Stanley and the Turbines. Stanley! Yes, Pierre? We have to clean them out the high before you know say Stanley, we're going to go to school now. Oh, you know I have them out here, high school. You see me teaching for read and write. Johnny, my boy, mama send you to
guest is a fashion historian, associate lecturer in cultural and historical studies at London College of Fashion and a PhD candidate at Goldsmiths University. She is also the founder and creative director of the Costume Institute of the African Diaspora, an organisation dedicated to researching the history and culture of dress and adornment from the African diaspora. Greetings and welcome to Lika Kirkland. Hello. <laughs> now, can you tell us the reason for that first selection that we just heard? Okay, so um, when I was little, I used to spend a lot of time with my nan, my grandmother, and I kind of spent most of my weekends and after school at her house and she had you know one of those old um radiograms record gram um and she had all these old 45s and uh i think there were 45s and and the long players as well and she had them in this radiogram and so I used to go through, methodically go through every single 45 she had. And this was one of the ones that she had. And I used to play every single weekend. That was my song. <laughs> so I just, it really reminds me of her. And it really reminds me of being little at her house because that was such a large part of my childhood. So it's almost like a tradition that you would do that every every weekend. Yeah, it kind of got to a thing where it was like, that was my song because because I would always play this song. Um, and she used to sing it to me sometimes as well and always like, why you love the dumpling song so much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a beautiful memory to have. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it was good. It was, it was nice being at her house and going through the music. <laughs> oh. So with that in mind, can you tell us, um, as I ask all of my guests, as we're people mm. of the diaspora, what, what is your heritage? So my family come from Jamaica, um, both sides, both my mum and dad, and everybody comes from Jamaica. Okay. And, you know, growing up, as as obviously we're going to get into a bit of your life story, um, mm-hmm. can't get through everything because I know you've got a lot to share, but we'll get through <laughs> as, much, as much as we can. Um, can you remember any of your fashions growing up? Well, you see, this is the other thing. Um, spending so much time with my nan... And obviously, you know, my mum, everyone in my family, like my my mum, my gran, my great gran, my great aunt, everybody sews and everyone makes clothes. And so it was just a thing where everyone had a sewing machine. Everyone had um, fabric scissors, fabric pins. It just became part of my life. So talking about fashion and making clothes and, you know, having a nice outfit for the dance on Saturday or whatever it is. It was just one of those things that was always around me. So um, thinking about fashion specifically, I mean, I grew up in kind of 80s and 90s. So um, I I definitely remember um, towards the end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, the cultural medallions. Everyone had Africa in the little leather medallion around their neck with the red, gold and green. And then the little... um, the little box hats that were very popular from um, Tribe Called Quest and and hip-hop culture and all of that that was um, really prevalent in those times coming into the UK at those times. So, yeah, very much, um, that was very much a part of my upbringing, um, looking into clothes and fashion and making clothes and understanding how 
um, things were put together. So, you know, in them fashions that you might have sported when you were growing up, were there any that your parents didn't approve of? Mm, I went through a phase of wearing all black. Okay. <laughs> and I think, you know, I was, I was in... I was really into all different types of music, like quite alternative music as well. So I, I had, and, and it was a, originally the time of wearing ripped jeans and stuff like that as well. And I remember my nan was like, take off them the jeans and let me sew them up. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no nan, that's the fashion. Like, you know, that's just like the trend. Yeah, to you it's fashion, <laughs> to her it's her worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Mm. Mm. Oh my gosh. Um, so thinking back to one of my previous guests, um, they told me that the Windrush generation would rent clothes um, to take pictures to send back to the family in Jamaica, um, you know, to give an insight into what life was like over there, that they were doing well. Um, what style of clothing were your parents' Sunday best fashions, you know, that you can remember? What were they like? So I remember um, specifically my nan, she was really, she was really, really good at seeing something in the shop or the catalogue and then making it without a pattern. I don't know if you know very much about um, clothes and how you make clothes, but I'll just um, quickly go through it. Basically, to make an item of clothing, you usually have to use a paper pattern um, trace around the paper pattern or cut around the paper pattern once you've pinned it to the fabric and then sew it together. It's very much like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. Mm. And she was, um, she used to be something called a free sewer. I don't know if you've ever heard of a of free sewing, but free sewing is the uh, type of person who can just, without needing a pattern, can just cut a shape out, sew it together, know how it goes together instinctively, and then they've got themselves an outfit. And she was one of those people that was able to do that. And in... Jamaica and specifically in Jamaica but certainly I think throughout the Caribbean there was apprenticeships of people who were trained in how to free sew and and trained in how to make clothes so her clothing was very much about um, what she'd seen in the catalogue a nice outfit that she'd seen in the catalogue a nice dress or something like that that was always you know very um, below the knee and it might have um, box sleeves or short sleeves or or whatever it is but it was always very you know um, respectful and smart and and she'd be able to just sew it straight away and I would just be utterly fascinated as, as soon as I, especially as when I went round to my mum my mum can't free sew she can sew using a pattern and I'd be like well Nan don't do it like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and and this was when she's passed away now but when um, I was giving a eulogy at her funeral like this was something I mentioned because it's actually such a skill to be able to make clothes without a pattern or without even a design. You just looked at a picture and then you've made it completely. So she was really good at at being able to um, look at things, just see something in a shop and then come home and make it. So, you know, just really, really smart. She she made herself a suit once, you know, a a sort of a a skirt suit with the little jacket and and, um, the line skirt. Yeah, so those are the sorts of things that she'd always wear. Um, Sunday best to church or anything like that yeah so you know when you say about the free sewing and they had training to do it do you know what Mm -hmm. that would entail is there any you know insight that you can give us into what that training you know um, entails in terms of is it that 
you know, you look at clothes in a different way. So in you having the training, you look at clothes and see the patterns within them and that's how you free sew or, you know, can you... Yeah, I think I think it's very much because of the, um, the length and depth of the apprenticeships in the Caribbean, I think it's very much being able to judge if you saw a sleeve, for example, let's say it's a puff sleeve and it's got a certain amount of um, darts in the sleeve so it, it, it folds just where it meets the seam, then it's being able to look at that particular sleeve, know that instinctively know what the shape of a sleeve is anyway. I mean, sleeve shapes tend to be fairly, very similar. You know, you go around the top of the shoulder, so it's got to have a curve in it, and then you go under the armpit, so it's got to have a dip. And, a, and so they tend to be quite similar, but you just need to change them depending on whether they've got darts in or whatever it is. So it's it's really about being able to instinctively know the patterns that are the shapes that are needed for the body and then being able to add in mentally add inches or centimetres to be able to make however many sleeves or whatever particular feature you want to have on that certain part of that pattern if I'm am I making sense yeah 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 so so I just I think it's I think it was basically a training first of all in being able to know what shapes go around the body and mm. then being able to add your own particular style and features with darts or pleats or whatever it is and then instinctively know okay if I put my thumb there my thumb is um, an inch and a half so I know that that's going to be the size of or if I put two sums, it's three inches. Do you know what I mean? So, right, yeah. Right. So do you know if that's lost with her generation then or, or is it still being taught, you know, somewhere, <laughs> hopefully? I, I haven't... <laughs> I haven't seen very many free sewers, but I mean, there was um, there was a programme, I'm not sure if it's still on, and it was called um, The Great British Sewing Bee, I think it was called. Mm. And there was a, a black girl on that programme and she was a free sewer. She's a young girl. I mean, this was a, a few okay. years ago. And um, God, I actually think maybe she was from Birmingham as well, actually. I'm not sure. But she was a free sewer. And it, it, my mum phoned me up in excitement. She was like, this girl can free sew. <laughs> because it was, it was one of those things where you just don't see it very often yeah. anymore. Yeah. You know, people are so used to using patterns and blocks. And, and block is kind of like a, um, a cardboard pattern. So it's, it's a very set shape that you then change as you make paper patterns from the block so people are so used to using those things if they make clothes anymore of course a lot of people don't even make clothes anymore um or they or they get um a simplicity pattern or a butterick pattern or whatever it is so there aren't very many people that i've come across who still free sew so i think in her generation there were lots of people who were doing it especially from the caribbean because that was what they'd grown up learning and so you know once you kind of get into this country and um time goes by things become easier to access um time the time that you have to do things become less and less so you know those factors tend to work together to mean that people aren't doing those skills anymore they aren't they aren't sharing those skills anymore mm-hmm well, if we've got any free sewers out there, please share the knowledge, pass it on to the, <laughs> you know, the younger generations. We need to keep all these skills and all this wisdom alive. Yes, absolutely. For now, we're going to move on to your next selection, Dat by Pluto Shervington. Why did you choose this selection? So I've got a real thing about um, songs that I've got stories in. I really love stories and 
my dad is Rasta and he was he would always talk about how um you know Rasta's not supposed to eat this and Rasta's not supposed to eat that and Rasta's not supposed I mean he eats whatever he doesn't eat pork but he eats whatever um and so this song really reminds me of conversations that I have with him about um you know the principles of Rastafari and you know how what you're supposed to do and it's just because it's such a funny song as well about really how sometimes depending on your circumstance the principles that you're supposed to follow don't always co- come in alignment you know what i mean okay <laughs> you just kind of have to do what you've got to do when you need to do it so yeah that's why i chose this one all right here we go with that pluto shervington Rasta Ozzy from up the hill Decide to check on him grocery bill And when him add up the things he need The tune he done with him safe he buy little weed Him hand on him jawline Read him I and just meditate The time is so hard lad I man nothing about immigrate I make up in my lord I might as well go against Simon Fiat So I forward the market I sight the butcher boy by the gate You want what? No, I might a kill a queen Try beef now I no check the no grass we green What about fall? What you know it's time for a change Me a fish Got children out of that range How about the steak? What you know you no sight the rain Try the tribe now Burn me belly when I pull me pipe Alright, hold the pork Push him out me brethren here, sell I a pound at that thing there. Then the butcher pull up a stool, begin to question as he how him so fool. What kind of something cooking a pot? From him born, he never did hear about that. Well, watch I know, master. Give I time, make a try, explain. It's just like a flim show We protect the humble with change the name I would have feel so cute We come in and ask for some anal fat I and I feel safer If we change the subject and call it that Now can you give us a little insight into how your journey into the world of fashion began? We know obviously it was it seems like it was in your blood but when did you, you know, actually make that decision that you wanted to, you know... F- continue this journey in your own life and make it your career um so when I was at school I I distinctly remember having a conversation with the careers advisor and of course um school in the kind of um late 80s 90s I think we're talking 90s now um she wasn't interested in anything that any young girls from the estate were talking about you're going to go and be a secretary. That's that's the job for you. Or you're going to go and work for the NHS or something like that, you know? And and I'm not I'm not good with blood and sick people. I'm good with creativity and making. And I, I really wanted to be a fashion designer. So we sit in front of the careers advisor and she says, okay, what ideas do you have for the kind of career you wanted? And I said to her, I want to be a fashion designer. She was like, nope. <laughs> straight away. Just straight she said, away. nope. <laughs> she said, um career being a fashion designer is very competitive and you're not a very competitive person and so that's not going to be something that you're going to be able to do and blah 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 and and so therefore what'd she say she's told me i should go and be a nurse um you know girls from your estate they they 
get really good in, in going to do um, nurse practice and stuff like that. That's the kind of thing that you should do. And I have no interest in being a nurse. At all. I've got so much respect for nurses, but I couldn't do their job. I really couldn't do their job. I really couldn't. So, and I was kind of put out for that, but also I'm a bit stubborn. So you tell me I can't do something, that means I'm going to go and do it. You want to do so, it more, yeah. <laughs> so her telling me that I'm not going to be a fashion designer means now I've got to go and be a fashion designer. Yeah. Right? And so I went to college and, you know, I followed, because I've always been, um, quite artistic and, and um, I used to paint and sculpt and things like that. I followed the path of doing art because I because I had been told that I couldn't be a fashion designer, even though I've got this background in sewing and making. I did have a little bit of um, lack of confidence in going to be that. So I was always looking at fashion, looking at the fashion courses, looking at people making, going, I can do that, but I wasn't actually doing it myself. And so when I got to, by the time I finished university, I was still making um, and I was still doing everything, you know, um, making patterns and whatever else. And I just decided that, you know what, now is the time to just do my own thing. So I, I, became a fashion designer started making started selling clothes you know I, I, I got a stall together um went into business with a friend of mine where we used to take apart leather jackets and make bags out of leather jackets recycled leather jackets and you know and then I started making t-shirts and dresses and stuff like that for people and you know so I, I kind of got into doing it that way through always being afraid to kind of take that leap because I was told that I couldn't do it. But I knew that I was eventually going to go and do it anyway, because you're not going to stop me doing something that I really want to do. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was kind of after university that I said, right, I'm going to um, go headlong into this thing and did that for about uh, three, three, no, about five years, three to five years. I did fashion design and and selling and making and then realize that actually this isn't something I want to do at all <laughs> which is how I got into thinking I know that I want to be involved in clothes and 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 understanding about them but actually making them for people is not where my interests lie so how did you move on from that how what was the transition like and can you tell us how you got to the point that you're you're at today so um, from that point, because I did have such a, I still have a very um, strong interest in clothing and or I still had a very strong interest in clothing and costumes and design. And I had, by that point, I joined a carnival group and I was um, a mass player for about five years. And I used to, every year with the mass camp, I'd be there making the, the huge mass costumes and every every bit of knowledge that I'd gained at that point, all my ability to um, sew and make and all my artistic creativity of being able to draw and, and my sculpting ability of being able to build, all of that became necessary to be able to work in the mass camp because I had to make massive costumes and then work with the um, younger kids to help them understand how to sew their own costumes and make their own costumes. And so it became like an industry of about five years working in this mass camp of starting summer courses and getting fabrics together, 
and figuring out what the theme for the following year's um, carnival was going to be and how we got the costumes together and, and what they're going to look like and designing them and making them and all of this. And so by that time, I'd done that for about five years. I wanted to know more now about traditional costumes, traditional carnival costumes. And so I got a bit of funding and I went around the Caribbean. I think I've been to... Only, only I've only been to about thirteen islands, thirteen or fourteen islands, um, researching traditional carnival costumes and what they look like and where they come from and how they came together and what people thought of them and all of this, and and getting that knowledge together, then led me on to developing the costume institute, the Kayad Costume Institute, the African Diaspora, because my question to myself was. Where is where is the institution for all of our all of our clothing and costume? When I'm looking in, when I go to the library or anything like that, and I look at books that talk about fashion and clothing and dress and all of these things, they're all based on European dress. Where is the books? Where is the institute that talks about clothing, African clothing, clothing from the African diaspora? carnival costumes where are those books and i thought well there's got to be a particular institute that has that there's got to be somewhere and i just I, maybe i just don't know where it is so i spent about three months researching i phoned lots of universities in the states because i was like there's got to be somewhere in america there's there's nowhere here so that it must be in america it's not at the vna so it must be in america it's not in america <laughs> it doesn't exist mm-hmm. I, I spent three months looking Various universities I contacted in the States, various um, institutions, museums across Europe. No one could say, they were like, I I don't think I've ever heard of an institute that talks about clothing from the African diaspora or clothing from Africa specifically. One person um, in Germany had a collection of African art um, because I ended up contacting quite a few private collectors as well. And he said to me, why would anyone be interested in in clothing from Africa and the African diaspora? You know, there's very much there's very much this belief that, well, you know, Africans were just naked until they were introduced to Europeans, weren't they? And I'm just like, okay, (laughs) you know what? (laughs) Time to step in and come with some knowledge. So by the time I'd finished going around the Caribbean um, and looking at carnival costumes and asking questions and I suddenly thought okay I've got to I've got to make this thing because I can't find it anywhere I can't find what I'm looking for and I imagine I'm not the only person in the world who's looking for this so let me build this institute why who told me if you do that because <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things where you know you get an idea and you think right I'm going to do this thing and then you realise just how big this idea is. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't thought about it at that time. I hadn't thought, oh, yeah, this is going to be completely insurmountable. This is going to be a lifelong journey of trying to find out information about um, clothing and dress history and all of this from the African diaspora. I didn't realise, because first of all, of course, the African diaspora doesn't have any borders. It has no particular landmass. The African diaspora literally is where people of African heritage have been dispersed to across the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's that. That means tracing all of these people. That means all the different um, communities that have, have built up in various parts of the world, what they have taken with them from wherever they've come from, and then what they've developed from wherever they are. 
And so this was, oh God, what year are we talking? About 2010, I'd just finished my second tour of the Caribbean and um, started to ask different questions. Um, and there were some really interesting, really funny little interesting stories about asking questions in the Caribbean because some people just, they were frightened. Like, who are you? Who, wh- what, why have you come from England asking questions? Wh- who, who sent you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'd started this institute and then realized that for my own self, there was certain knowledge that I felt like I needed to have because I felt like there's things that I'm missing. I don't, I don't have theoretical knowledge. I don't, I'm not able to argue a point about something. I know that these things are important, but I don't know how they're important or I don't know the, the, the intricacies of being critical about a particular thing. And so I found um, an MA course at London College of Fashion. And I, again, looked at this MA course for a couple of years and deliberated with myself whether I should do this because it's completely theory and I know nothing about theory. And, you know, at the time I wasn't a good writer. And, you know, again, had another crisis of confidence and spoke to the tutor. And he was like, you know what, I can work with you. We can we can sort this out. Come in and have an interview. And I had an interview with him, and he gave me a, he gave me a position on the course straight away. He was like, "I've I've listened to you. I've see what you're doing. I, I've looked at the Costume Institute, which had been going for a few years by that time. He said, and I can see the work that you're trying to do. I can totally help you with understanding what you feel you're not understanding or what you feel that you don't know. So um, I did that MA course, did really well on the MA course, which I was surprised because I I felt at that time like I didn't know anything about anything. Um, and so from there, have been able to build up more and more knowledge, know more now the questions to ask. I'm able to be much more critical about um, the type of engagement with clothing that black people have. And it's, you know what, Daniil, it's so important. We can just talk about clothes and fashion on a very sort of surface level. But when you understand the minutiae, of why people wear what they wear and what it's about. Listen to me. Hey, it's deep. It's deep. Right. Well, we're going to get right into that as much as we can in this one hour that we have. But for now, I've got to move on to your next selection, which is Beware, Taurus Riley. Why did you choose this selection? Mm, I love this song. <laughs> I just, I think that um, being in... I, I, I tend to spend quite a bit of time in Jamaica. My dad lives in Jamaica, so I, you know, I go and see him um, as much as I can. And understanding this—this this is the other thing I think. Being from the Caribbean, but specifically being from Jamaica, people have a particular idea of Jamaica in the UK and and around the world. I think um, I've done a lot of travelling, and whenever I travel somewhere, someone says, "Oh, where are you from?" and I'll say. Um, I'm from the UK, but my family's from Jamaica. And then they'll, instinctively, they'll bring up Bob Marley or something like that. And then they'll bring up guns, and then they'll bring up drugs, and then they'll bring up weed. Do you know what I mean? And then they have a very specific idea of what Jamaica is supposed to be about. And this song really reminds me of um, what people think of Jamaica on the outside. But also, it also lets me know that there are people in Jamaica that are very... This is what a lot of people, I think, don't understand about Jamaica. People are very respectful in Jamaica and they're, they're very um, 
very concerned with their own image out into the world. And this song really reminds me of how people feel about themselves and how they really care about um, what happens in their country and how they're perceived. Okay, here we go with Beware Taurus Riley. Beware for the shatter them strap. Rasta man, I tell the youths them, they load the glock. Beware. Now the cops start attack and them no care No It's a shame to see Brothers killing themselves Wasting energy Should be uplifting themselves Who's the enemy? Putting shots on the shelf What we need is brain food and belly food for our health So don't get caught up in a petty passion Be careful of them guns and ammunition And let us make a change in meditation Cause we could use the strength for cultivation, my lord Beware, for the shot of them strap Trust a man that tell the youths them no Beware, now the cops start attack and them no care And them we shot you in a you Beware, now the whole place start Trust a man that tell the youths them fell out of care Beware, now the cops start attack and them no care Right, you touched on, just before your last selection, you touched on, um, you know, the hidden depths within our clothes and the psychology behind them and, like, the history and the combination of all and the amalgamation of all of it. Can you, you know, give us a little insight in, you know, elaborate on what you were you were saying there? So, something like, um, at the moment, I'm just uh, completing a PhD. I'm sort of halfway through a PhD and I'm my PhD is based on how Caribbean women use their clothing to try and um, mitigate against negative perceptions of their blackness, right? They use their clothes as a kind of tool of respectability. And you asked earlier about my nan and the kind of things that she would wear for a Sunday best and stuff like that. And there were lots of people in our community black people who have clothes that are supposed to wear clothes because they are a symbol of something, not just in our community, but across the world, people do it, right? They wear clothes because they're supposed to signify a particular thing. It's not just about comfort. It's not just about style. You're, you're sending a particular message with whatever it is you're wearing that day. It could be, it could be, you got undressed the night before, you left your clothes on the floor in a clump, crumpled heap and you've put on the same crumpled heap clothes back on your body the next day and you've walked out. Even that says something about who you are and what you think of yourself and how you feel about yourself. So so your clothing, everything you have on your body is really like a, a hidden way of being able to communicate a particular message about what you think and feel about yourself everything your hair your style the way you wear things you might have things off the shoulder you might always be showing your shoulders you might never show any part of your skin whatever it is 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 presenting a particular message about you and so i know that one of the things that hasn't really been discussed very much in critical circles that discuss clothing is really the engagement that black people have with their clothes and 
and what those clothes mean. Now, you know, being a black person, that the image of black people or the perception of blackness has been very derogatory um, forever, right? And so a lot of us have used clothes in a way to try and mitigate against that derogation and try to use them as a way to not just make ourselves feel better, but to make us look better to other people. You can't think I'm bad if I'm wearing a suit, right? Um, there was there was a, a campaign a little while ago when we had the first iteration of Black Lives Matter and Trayvon Martin was shot and he was in a hoodie and there was, there was a, a campaign about... Um, I think in this country it was called Hug a Hoodie, but there was also another campaign that was called 56 Black Men, and it was um, all, all black men dressed in black hooded tops, and it was really about trying to understand that people who wear hoodies aren't bad. The ho- uh, just because you're black and you're in a hoodie doesn't mean that you're instinctively or inherently a bad person. It's just a hooded top, and you wear a hooded top because you want to... F- feel warmer or you know some people do wear it to hide their faces or whatever it is but you can't just look at a hoodie top and be like okay that means that that person is a bad person and also they just happen to be in black skin as well so therefore they're doubly a bad person right so it's really being at it's really about being able to understand the messages that certain types of clothing portray and then how those particular types of clothing are changed when they're put on a black body I hope that made sense. Yes, that definitely answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I told you I talk a lot. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. That's that's exactly what we want. Um, but for now, we're going to have to move on to your next selection, which is Blood Money Protégé. Why did you pick this selection? So this one, this one is about politics, right? And again, going back to what I was saying before about the perceptions of Jamaica, it's really about um, un- understanding the depths of... Um, politics and what happens in countries like Jamaica and and knowing that places in the Caribbean specifically I'm I feel like I'm maybe too Caribbean centered but you know I, I feel very passionate about it like the Caribbean has been used as somewhere that started capitalism right that sort of launched the industrial revolution and it's almost as if the people there have been ignored but understanding that those places have their own um, depths of political issues and, and what happens with the people is so very important. And I love this song because it just outlines it 100%. Here we go with Blood Money Pro today. But now watch no face, beg no more pardon. Enough drugs, money, they are cherry garden. Enough individual society applauding. You can ask anybody with them, get them starting. But no politician take a donation. So no criminal will never see a station. Never see a cell, not even a courthouse. But a every Sunday we see them take a boat out. North Coast Resort and car dealership. The construction company, them just don't legit. Use the washing money, turn it round and hide it When they kick back them come in, the government delight it So, police cancel operation Cause no real bad man a go station Now if you check the situation A blood money running nation Come take a look in a Jamaica Injustice in the place now 
If what you see no really face you Then you what the problem what we face to Right, now, obviously, you have found out so much knowledge when it comes to um, costumes, fashion in general, traditional <coughs> clothing. Um, could you share any of the insights that you've come across in your time? I know there's, that's a big question, but, for example, um, you know, African print in relation to tartan and things like that, things that people might not be aware of. So, um, all right, I'll give you a little anecdote. One of the times that I was going around the Caribbean, one of my bits of research was about madras cloth. Now, I don't know if you know what madras cloth is, but it's the kind of, um, it's, it's bandana. You know, do you know bandana material from Jamaica mm-hmm. that they use in traditional clothing? Right. So, so that's, that is a type of madras and there's different types of similar sort of, um, fabric across the Caribbean in varying islands. And I turned up in, um, where was I? In the Virgin Islands, in the British Virgin Islands, asking questions about traditional clothing and madras cloth and all of this. And, you know, if this was um, a part of their heritage and which it isn't, it, the madras wasn't a, isn't a part of the Virgin Islands heritage particularly. Um, and they, the people there didn't want to speak to me. They were, they hid, they literally hid. There was one particular shop I was going to go to and speak to someone and I'd, I'd arranged with the Minister of Culture to meet with her and talk with her and she'd had to leave the island as I arrived, unfortunately. And she said, but go to this shop and speak to these people. The people turned off the light and locked the door. No! <laughs> they turned off the light and locked the door because, and the reason being is because the, the development of their traditional outfit that they had they had only developed a few months before I'd arrived and it hadn't been signed off yet by the Minister of Culture and it hadn't been agreed by the Parliament and all of this. And so because it hadn't been agreed, they didn't want to talk about it. Now, instead of just explaining that to me, I had to go through a journalist to find all of this business out. But they they didn't want to talk to me. So they turned off the light, then locked the door. They pretended they weren't there. It was it was hilarious, but it was also a bit strange because I just turned up on the, the Virgin Islands like, yeah, I'm come to talk about clothing and costume. and da-da-da. No, they didn't want to talk to me. So what I've what I ended up doing is um, researching some of the other islands, St. Lucia, Dominica um, and Cariacu and Martinique to find the Madras history and realize that there's a very strong link to tartan and so i did a project in 2015 um with kayad with my organization um tracing this story of how madras cloth went or how rather how tartan ended up influencing the production of madras cloth that then got sent to the caribbean and was used by lots of enslaved Africans before emancipation and then is still used in traditional clothing now in a lot of these islands. So that's a really interesting history and I'm actually just writing um, a chapter about it now and I'm putting together a book about it as well because it's really, really interesting. Okay, so when can we, I know I'm putting pressure on you now, but when can we expect (laughs) to get a copy of that? (laughs) Well, I mean, the the book that I'm writing the chapter for is called Transnational Scotland, and it's it's about Scotland's involvement in colonialism and slavery. Um, And so that, I'm not, that'll be out sometime next year. I'm not sure the date of when that'll be out, but that, 
my my chapter in there will be kind of tracing the history of my own research through the Caribbean and and India and Scotland and all that. Um, but my own book, I don't know, <laughs> because I need to go to India to get the research done for that. Um, because then there's a whole next thing of what um, the British did in India to them over there for it to then get made over there to come over here, to come over to the Caribbean. It's long. And with, what with this pandemic right now, you know, no one's spending any hours. I'm certainly not spending any hours on a plane to go to India. So, so you know, your book, is it going to go into into more detail into that rather than just the chapter that's going into the... Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my, book, my book will be very detailed, which is why I need to go over to um, India to get their... Um, to get all of that heritage of what happened, all history and heritage of what happened over there. Okay. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully we can get you back on and we can talk in, in much more detail about, yeah, about your findings. Um, for now, we're going to move on to your next selection, which is a brown skin, a Richie Spice. Why did you pick this one? Because um, I'm brown. <laughs> <laughs> Because I, I mean, I just, I love this. I mean, I love all of the songs that I've chosen, but I, I chose this song because um, it was one of the first ones that was a celebration of um, black women and brown skin, and you know, I just, I just love to hear someone bigging up black women, and so yeah, I thought that's got to go in there. All right, here we go with brown skin, which is a brown. I wanna wrap you and I lock you in my arms and brown skin. Come on, I love the vines, I love the spice, I love the passion you bring. Brown skin. Yes, I wanna wrap you and I lock you in my arms and a brown skin. Come on, I love the vines, I love the spice, I love the passion you bring. The way you smile, the way you retire, the way you take care of yourself. In you told us that you travelled to 13 different islands on this mission that you have to find out more about our fashions and our traditional clothing and, you know, our carnival costumes. Um, can you share any other stories from your, your journeys to these different islands? They might be funny, they might be serious, but things that kind of stand out to you on your journey so far? Um. Well... One of the things, when I was in Trinidad, we, I spent some time in Tobago and really found 
and um, uh, something really very interesting. I mean, I, I hope I hope no um, Trinidadians or Tobagoans uh, disagree with me when they hear this, but um, I found that Tobago tends to have a much stronger African retention than Trinidad. And um, when I was in Tobago and speaking to, I found uh, Madras in Tobago where I didn't find it so much in Trinidad. Um, but there was very much a, a strong retention of African traditions and and style and dress and all of that. And I, I found it really, really interesting. I went to a, a village called Wim and they were having a, um, a celebration, a cultural celebration at that time. And the headdresses and the, the wraps and the way that were dressed, all using madras and different fabrics as well, were very similar to geles from um, Nigeria. And I was just absolutely fascinated, like how how this retention in this tiny village in Tobago is so very strong and similar to things that I've seen in West Africa. And so I just, I, th I thought that was amazing as well. Um, also finding out about Abiyakuta in Jamaica, which um, again is a um, an, an area, Abiyakuta is an area in Nigeria and there's an area in Jamaica called Abiyakuta as well, which was started by um, Nigerian diaspora who went over to Jamaica in the 70s. So, you know, finding finding these African retentions throughout the Caribbean, it's it's... It seems obvious, but again, it's not something that's been highlighted and spoken about very much. And so, um, when you find, when I found these things, then there's it brings even more depth to what people have remembered and passed down through the generations when it comes to how we adorn ourselves, how we dress, and what those things mean, and you know where where different influences have come in, and a lot of the clothing and the style tends to be like soup. You know, and what I mean by that is it tends to be like a like a Saturday soup, a mixture of different ingredients to make a particular thing. Okay, so nothing is coincidence, basically. If you see something nothing in Africa that you saw in Yard, it's not a coincidence that it's mm -hmm. there. Yeah. Not at all. Okay. Wow. Um, we are coming near to the end of the interview, unfortunately, but I'm really hoping we can get you back because um, we couldn't squeeze everything I wanted to ask you into a full hour. But um, for now, we're going to move on to Silly Games. Janet Kay, why did you pick this selection? Oh, <laughs> this is another one of those ones from... Um, I remember being... This song has followed me throughout my whole life, so I thought it was appropriate to put this song in. Um, but this is another one that I remember from being young and um, my mom had a real fascination with it when I was young and then um, it followed me throughout college and even though I was really into alternative music, it was one of those things that I always remembered hearing and it always just kind of um, gives me a feeling of nostalgia whenever I hear it and as well because um, Lover's Rock is a very predominantly black British sound right that developed from the caribbean community in britain so i thought it was really important to include um a lover's rock tune within the selection to sort of highlight us being here so yeah that's why i included it here we go with silly games janet k let's see if you can hit that high note because <laughs> every time we meet we play 
For example, obviously in doing the research for um, this interview, I've seen that you're doing the classic art of sustainable fashion is one of your upcoming projects. Can you tell us more about that and maybe other possible projects for the future? So um, one of the things, before I talk about the classic art of sustainable fashion, I'll talk about the um, CIAD conference. So our organisation set up a conference to talk about clothing of the African diaspora specifically and see who else was out there doing the research because we've been going for about nine years now nine ten years and we were wanting to know if there was anyone out there there can't just be us in the UK doing this on our own there must be other people out there in the world who are also doing this too so we were like let's throw the net out and see who comes back so that was 2018 and we had a massive response just incredible absolutely incredible response so we've tried to do we said we were going to do it every two years and we were supposed to do it this year and then um yeah (laughs) you know this year turned into this year and so we're trying to do it next year trying to do the next conference next year because people are still talking about that conference from 2018. We had delegates come in from the States, from the Netherlands, from South Africa, from Canada, from, there were just people from everywhere coming into um, the university to have this conference and talk about clothing and to find out all this information and to share what they had um, researched themselves. So the next conference that we're having, um, which will hopefully touch wood be next may um it's talking specifically about fabric fabric from the african diaspora and africa and um how we've utilized fabric and material culture to um express ourselves and say what say whatever we want to say about who we are and what they mean what those particular fabrics mean to our communities. So that's what the conference is about next May. Then the Classic Art of Sustainable Fashion, which has been in production for about five years now. And again, it's one of those things where um, we try and make this thing happen (laughs) every other year and then something happens. This time it's the COVID, you know, I'm hoping that by the time we actually get it up off the ground, we can actually um, go through with it. So what we're trying to do is get 10 students from over here, take them over to the Bahamas. And I've been working a lot with um, our partners in the Bahamas who are called Creative Nassau. 
um, Pam Burnside, who's uh, my good friend over there. She runs Creative Nassau, and she's um, trying to reinvigorate the straw plaiting industry that um, started the domestic economy in the Bahamas. And she's really trying to get young people to um, learn straw plat and all about plaiting and and why it's important and sort of, you know, um, get it get it going again. And so I wanted to take 10 young people from over here, take them over to the Bahamas to um, work with 10 young people from over there and use straw plaiting and try and develop small enterprises, get them into... I think we were talking about four groups of four groups of five and get them into um, these small groups to develop enterprises of how they could use straw plat to develop projects like bags or shoes or hats or whatever it were, whatever it was, some item of fashion, some item of accessory that they could make from straw plat that they could then make and market. So it was, it's really about using traditional, um, things like straw plaiting and seeing how you can use it in a modern context to develop enterprises. Wow, you've got a lot of work to be getting on with. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> oh, if you've enjoyed today's show and you want to get in touch, please make sure you check out the links in the description. You can go to ciad.com org.uk also but like I said all of the links so that you can connect with this amazing woman doing so many great great things um, like I said the links are all in the description if you want to connect um, we're going to finish off with your final selection alright right. <laughs> and Kabaka Pyramid why did you pick this one um, because it's it's such a lovely song and it's such a uplifting song and I love chronics and I I just it's one of those ones where no matter you know with all this work that I've told you about and with all this traveling you know it gets quite tiring and sometimes you get people like I was saying um, the people in the Virgin Islands that just don't want to speak to you and everybody is not positive about what you're doing and sometimes it can get a bit down and this song every time I hear this song it just lifts me up it really just makes me feel better and it's like you know what me all right still you know so yeah okay i've enjoyed talking with you so much i could talk to you for hours and like i said i really <laughs> hope that you will come back because um there's yes, so definitely. much that you've you found out that needs to be shared and and you just got such a great energy about you i love your oh, stories thank you. yeah <laughs> You're more than welcome. Okay, we're going to leave you with the sounds of me. All right, Chronics and Kabaka Pyramid. I hope you have a wonderful week. Make sure you come back here next Wednesday. As always, blessed love. To give the most high praise From a city lit them pan both eyes raised Breathing the better life so I pray To still I see I for watch over those like we Smile with the rising sun The creation me never hiding from No negativity up in a high kingdom Mama Africa your child